In fifth grade, I entered into the most prestigious club available at the actual uh, elementary school in West Milford. It was the chess club. Why would I say that it is the most prestigious? It's actually not the most prestigious. That was a joke. Not a joke that I entered into chess club because I actually did do that. But it was, the most, it was not the most prestigious because I didn't really do anything in that club. In fact, I, I failed to show up more times than I did show up. And yet, the weird thing is, is as amazing as that testimony is, I just spoke the truth to you that I quit out on chess club in the fifth grade. Um, what is amazing is that if you look at the yearbook, you would see my picture there. I showed up for the picture, and that was just really about it. <laughs> but if you looked at the yearbook, you would say, here is a faithful attender of fifth grade chess club in the heart of West Milford. Good on him. There are a lot of groups, a lot of clubs, a lot of communities that don't take a lot of effort to get into. And that is a reflection those low requirements are a reflection of the prestige of that group, of that community. Sometimes the club, like I just confessed to you, doesn't really care. <laughs> so what? Josh Barlow doesn't show up for chess club seven out of the eight weeks we have it. Whatever. They'll still put his picture in the thing. They didn't X me out of the uh, yearbook photograph. But some clubs, some groups, some communities, they take a lot of care in who they let in. They take a lot of care in how you not only get in, but also what it looks like to be a part of that club. You think about some of these upper echelon billionaires clubs where literally the requirements are unknown to you. You cannot know the requirements. They hold it in such high regard that you don't know you're in the club until somebody says, hey, by the way, you're in. And usually these clubs that, that consider themselves prestigious, they come at a high cost. Part of the reason you know that you're in the club is because you are paying so much to be there. This is how I know I'm a resident of Stockholm. It's because I pay so many taxes, right? But when we think about the kingdom of God, we need to consider two things. What is the cost? What is the cost for the kingdom of heaven? What are the requirements to be considered a citizen of God's kingdom? And if that cost could be paid and somebody could become part of God's kingdom, then what does that look like? What is the ongoing requirements for the kingdom? Here in Matthew chapter 21, and Mike and I argued about this for, for some time. Really, most of my hours this week were spent arguing with Mike about this. But in all of chapter 21, all the way through to the chapter of 23, Jesus is really having one long conversation, right? He, he comes in, he's triumphant, everybody's singing Hosanna, laying down the, the palms before him, right? A sign of the, that he is the Messiah, everybody's attesting he is the king, and he is there for one mission, and that is to save. But then he goes into the temple, and he cleans out the temple, all the, all the money changers, all the, the salesmen, he clears it out. says that my, my father's house is a house of worship. It's a house of prayer. It's not a house for making money and exercising greed. He heals the sick as well. Right? In all these ways, Jesus is saying, I am the king and I am here and I am here to save my people. I'm here to save my people. 
And in chapters 21 all the way through to 23, he gets down to the nitty-gritty of just who his people are. Who his people are. In a sense, who's in the kingdom of God and who's not. Today we're going to be looking at a few parables. One, a real-life parable as we look at the tree, but then also as he continues in conversation with the Pharisees, he's going to give parables, right? He's going to give these real-life stories that have a spiritual, uh, a spiritual truth inside of them for us to learn, and we're going to be considering what the requirements of the kingdom of heaven are. That leads us to our big idea. If you're taking notes, you can write this one down. What the king requires, he provides. What the king requires, he provides. Hopefully today, by the end of our time in God's word, we will be worshiping God because he has provided what we need to be a part of his eternal kingdom. So look at Matthew 21. We start in verse 18. reads this. In the morning, as he, that's Jesus, was returning to the city, he became hungry. Right? I guess there was no Denny's around. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. What's going on here? Jesus has done the trial for entry, then he cleans out the temple, then he heals the sick people as they come to him in the temple, and then he goes away and rests for the night. And as he heads back to Jerusalem the next morning, of course, he becomes hungry, and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he turns off the path and goes up to the fig tree. He looks at the fig tree, and there's no figs on it, right? It doesn't produce the fruit that he is looking for. And because it has not produced the fruit he is looking for, Jesus curses it. May no fruit ever come from you again. And the tree responds in a certain way, right? The tree withers up at once. What's going on here? Jesus curses this fig tree because even though it is giving the appearance of being in season, really there is no fruit to be had. In verse 19, we see that this is fig tree. It has leaves, but no fruit. This gives the appearance that this tree is actually ready to bear fruit. Right? On a fig tree, you have the leaves and the fruit, and they come in at the same time. And so from a distance, this tree looked fruitful. At a distance, this tree looked like it was ready to be harvested. And yet, upon further, closer inspection, it turns out that this tree has done a great lie, in a sense. It has not produced the fruit that Jesus required of it. In verse 20, we read this. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? So, at this moment, the disciples see Jesus walk up to this thing and just turn it into a carbon pillar, I guess. And the disciples are absolutely amazed. How did Jesus just do that, Right? Jesus does that because he has the authority to do that. And if you're familiar with the book of Mark, Mark actually splits this up into two days, which is probably the, reason, is probably the real way chronologically that it happened. But uh, here in Matthew, Matthew puts these two ends of the story together immediately to show us what God's authority looks like in Jesus. Is that, yes, the king is here to save the king's ministry, Jesus' ministry, the Messiah's ministry is here, and yes, he is here to save but he's also here to judge. He's also here to judge. And this, this illustration, this parable says, who is Jesus the one to judge? Who is Jesus going to do this marvelous work of judgment upon? It's those who do not bear the fruit he requires. So for those who do not bear the fruit that Jesus is looking for, to those Jesus 
curses. And for us, that raises a big question. What does Jesus require? What is it? If, If there is either the kingdom of God on one hand, or if it is Jesus cursing us on the other hand, the question is, what does Jesus require? If he requires fruit, what is that as well? In verse 21, he explains to the disciples. Remember, the disciples are marveled here. They're like, what is this? How did he just wither that fig tree at once? Jesus doesn't appear to answer the question, but he answers the question. It says this in verse 21. Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Jesus here is working out in this real-life parable that he is there to judge. But at the same time, he's encouraging his disciples that he is the one who promises to meet the requirement. That the king, what he requires, he also provides. We get a taste here of this as Jesus is saying that it is faith, not doubt, that will produce the fruit. Jesus' promise here isn't an empty promise. He's saying, if you have faith, then fruitfulness follows. Where can we even find that promise to be true? Well, it's in God himself. Look at verse 22. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive. Receive. Jesus here, and he's going to explain this further as we go through the passage, but Jesus here is saying right out of the get-go that what I require, I will provide. And the act of faith is the act of receiving what God has done on our behalf. What the king requires, he provides. Now, if we just left here, and probably this is where the disciples are at, they're like now thinking, okay, fruit, withering trees, and throwing mountains. This sounds awesome, right? If that's the thing that I can do later is just withering vegetation, and I can just do that in the blink of an eye like that, that sounds pretty cool. But if I get to start hurling mountains into the sea, that's even better. Now we're getting into some Marvel territory. But Jesus, Jesus clarifies what genuine fruit is. And he does so in a way that both bolsters our understanding of what that fruit means for you and me, but also the warning if we disregard. Because next he turns to the Pharisees. Verse 23, read this. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? So Jesus, after cursing the fig tree, heads into the temple, right? He's still on mission probably still hungry, but still on mission. And he goes to the place of his father. He goes to the place of his father's house of worship and of prayer. And who would be there? Well, it's his adversaries, the Pharisees. And the Pharisees come up and they seek to challenge his authority. And they do so in the stereotypical way that the Pharisees and the scribes do, these priests and elders. They ask him a question about who he is. And what they're trying to do here by asking this question is they're trying to reveal Jesus as a fraud. I'm sure we are all aware of what a fraud means. Somebody who says they are something, but in reality turns out that they are not. So the Pharisees here, their game plan is to prove that Jesus is a fraudulent Messiah King, that all of his claims hold no water. So they pose this question to him. By what authority are you doing all of these things, and who gave you this authority? Really what they're asking is, by whose power are you doing this? And what they're meaning there specifically is, 
clearing out the temple, getting all those money changers away, what he did the day before, and then also by healing the sick, but then also his claims. Because Jesus this entire time hasn't been just doing these miracles. He's been reinforcing. He's been saying that the reason why I'm doing all these things is because I'm proving to you that I am the Messiah. I am the one who is coming to save and to judge. So the Pharisees confront him and Jesus turns the tables on them. It says this in verse 24. I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. And here's the question. The baptism of John, where did it come from? Did it come from heaven or from man? The baptism of John here refers to the ministry of John, right? As he was paving the way for Jesus to come, right? The Lamb of God. And so the the Pharisees are put in a tough spot, right? They're put in a tough spot for two reasons. One, they really want to know what Jesus' answer to their question is. But then also, uh, secondly, they're put in a tough spot because they don't know how to answer the question. And look at, their, look at their little huddle here. They pull all of them aside. They're like, okay, we're the smartest religious leaders of our time. We should collectively be able to figure out how to answer Jesus, right? We should be the ones to reveal that he is the fraud. And the remainder of verse 25, they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, meaning that John the Baptist's ministry came directly from God, then Jesus will say to us, well, then why didn't you believe him? And you can kind of see the, the, between the rock and the hard place here of, of the scribes and leaders, right? They're about to confess in the middle of the temple that they believe God sent John the Baptist to prepare the way for Jesus. And they're going to say, no, right? Who would that prove to be the fraud? Themselves. But then the hard place here is that not only do they can't confess that, but then said, if we say, this is verse 26, from man, we are afraid of the crowd for they all hold John was a prophet. And so they're stuck between their own confession of uh, choosing to disbelieve Jesus's claim as Messiah, and then they're just plain old fear of what the people would do who have rightly perceived who Jesus is, the ones who did heed the ministry of God. They're stuck between this rock and a hard place, and so they officially, they cop out. Verse 27, so they answered Jesus, we don't know. The five-year-old answer. Did you do this? I have no idea. I really don't, right? Right? We don't know. And here's the problem for the Pharisees. They're the ones who are supposed to know. They're the ones that are supposed to stand in the temple and say, this is what God is doing. Here is the ministry of the Lord. The ministry of the Lord is here in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And now before all the people they are supposed to be ministering to, they have to admit, for the sake of their own pride, they have to admit, we cannot answer. We refuse to answer. We know what's going on. We know the Old Testament. And we are officially, our official public doctrine on this is we refuse to answer. Jesus does the same for them, in a way. He says back to them, well, then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. I think Jesus here understands that they know, that he knows, that they know, right? I think everybody in the room knows what's going on at this point, right? But Jesus doesn't actually refuse to, do, to tell them who he is and by what authority he does this. He gives them this parable. 
He says this in verse 28. What do you think? So now, he, now he's engaging them. Okay, you asked me your question. You can't answer my question. Let me, let me give you a story, and you can help. We can discuss this and figure it out together. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And the son answered, I will not. So, again, refuses to do it. But then afterward, he changed his mind and went. And so the father then goes to his other son and said the same. And the second son says, I go, sir, but he did not go. So then Jesus poses this question to the scribes and the elders. Which of the two did the will of the father? And they answer rightly. They say the first, right? How is it that the first son did the will of the father? It's because he changed his mind and he went and did the will of the father, right? So Jesus, paralleling this with, the, with the, the, uh, the leaders and elders, says this, Truly I say to you, again to the leaders here, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of heaven before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, right? in the way of godliness, in the way of the ministry of heaven, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your mind and believe him. He's posing this question, who is the faithful son? It's the one who changes his mind and does the will of the father. Jesus here is confronting the Pharisees. As though they appear, they have the leaves of fruitfulness the fruit of doing the will of the Father is absent. The fruit of doing the will of the Father is absent. They appear to be doing it. By a distance, they look like they are doing it all. But here, in not only their confession that they don't know, but here in their, or in, I'm sorry, in Jesus' understanding, Jesus knows the truth of their heart, that they are not producing fruit. The fruit that the Lord requires is to do his will. Thankfully, Jesus just doesn't point this out, but he actually lays it out for them. The two words here that I want to pick up, right, in verse 33, or I'm sorry, 32, is that John came to the way of righteousness, but you did not believe. And it's not that they believed John the Baptist, and that's how their salvation is secure, but that John the Baptist was purposefully saying, don't believe in me, but believe in Jesus, right? Because they didn't believe John the Baptist, that, that wasn't transferred over to Jesus, so they lack belief, but then this word here at the end, even when they saw him, they did not change their minds. Not to get too nerdy with you, but this word here is repentance in the Greek, right? This is repentance. What is the will of the Father? What does the Lord require? It is repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Repentance is acknowledging and disowning all the false kings of our lives, the Lord created us so that we would have him as king. And in our sinful brokenness, we choose from the world's plethora of kings. And with any king that we choose, we give the allegiance of our heart, our mind, our soul, our action. Right? Whatever king we have in our lives, those are the kings that we worship. Repentance is turning away from that allegiance to that false king. It's turning back to our creator. It's turning back to the one who rightfully deserves to be our king, the one who we need and the one who provides all we need. But along with that is belief. 
Now, belief is, in our day and age, a messed up word, right? You could say anything is, anything is believable, especially with the internet. Praise God for the internet. Anything is believable. Anything can be doctored. Anything can be proven true with enough people saying it's true, right? But belief isn't just mental assent. It's not just saying, I know that battle happened, right? I know that person lived. I know those words were said, right? It's not that. It's that your life depends on it. I heard it said this way. D.A. Carson says, belief is knowing God, trusting God's promises, depending on him for all we need, and committing to him as king. Knowing God, trusting God, depending on God, and committing to God's ways. That's what belief is. It is intellectual. I do know who God is. I do know his promises. I know why I need him and I know his ways. But then it's also that reliance. It's to say, not only do I think those things, but those things are the foundation of my life. That he is my king and I will live that way. So Jesus here is doing twofold for the Pharisees. He's revealing that they are not producing the fruit, but he's also instructing them, mercifully instructing them, saying, but the fruit is here for you. Repent and believe. The Lord requires repentance and belief. Repentance and belief for us. This should be an encouragement to the believers in the room here. Because sometimes we get twisted we get turned around, right? We get deceived into thinking that there's more required from God in order to be in his kingdom. That the Lord, yes, he requires repentance and belief, but in order to remain a Christian, in order to actually truly prove that you are saved, right, that I need to continue, right? I need to be able to produce these things. I need to talk to this many people about Jesus per week. I need to go to this many church meetings that are not Sunday morning a month, Right? I need to do all these things, and then the Lord will save me. It's not true. The will of the Father, the will of God, is that we repent and believe in Jesus Christ. It's not the high-powered fruit that saves us. It is simply the Lord that we believe and depend on. But this also serves as a warning. And if you are here today and you know that you have not followed the will of God, that repentance and faith has not been a part of your life, that you know who God is, that you know his promises, you know what he has done for you in Jesus, and you have said no, and this serves as a warning. In fact, all of 21 through 23 is a warning that the king who comes to save is also the king who comes to judge. And if you are found fruitless as the tree was found fruitless, then the judgment is for you. But again, we're encouraged. That there isn't anything above the bar that we are able to do in order to rely on Jesus. It is the fruit of the will of God that we would repent and believe and be saved. Jesus continues in verse 21 to, or 33 to really up the ante here. And this is again an encouragement to us, but also a warning to us. In verse 33, he hands out another parable to them as if they haven't already gotten it. Right? He gives them this. Here another parable. Right? There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. It is a setting here that this master has, has created this perfect vineyard. Right, It's well defended. It's already fruitful. There's all these good things about it. And then he leases it out to tenants. Really what's going on here is he's entrusting it to the, to the, uh, the caretakers of the property. 
What does he expect? Well, here we go. Verse 34. When the, when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. So what does he expect? Well, he expects these tenants that he's built this perfect vineyard for and leased the place to them. He expects them to produce the fruit that he requires. Verse 35. Let's see how these amazing tenants do. The tenants took his servants and they beat them up. They killed another one and they stoned another one. Is that producing fruit? I, uh, no. Verse 36, it gets even worse. Again, he sent out other servants more than the first, right? So here's the first round of servants. Okay, here comes the next batch of servants. And what did they do? What did the tenants do? And they did the same to them. They beat one, killed another, stoned another. Verse 37, finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. They identify him correctly. Here is the master's son. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. The tenants here are exercising evil. They're not doing what the master requires. Instead of producing the fruit that the vineyard, or I'm sorry, that the master had set up the vineyard for, instead the tenants are choosing to do evil. They're exercising disobedience, right? They are being greedy, and those things together match up into murder, right? They murder. They're committed to treating this vineyard and the master poorly. And so Jesus asked this question to the Pharisees in verse 40. He says, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And in a stroke of absolute pure truth, this is how the Pharisees answered. They said to him, he will put those wretches, totally correct assessment. These tenants are wretches, right? He will put him to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits of their season. What is the master to do? The master is to be just. The master is to be just. To give the unfruitful the death that they deserve. The evil, wretched tenants that murdered his son will deserve a wretched death. While the fruitful, those who are faithful to the master's will, will be given the vineyard. This shows that the master is just. The king is just. God is just. He is faithful to, to give love and truth to a thousand generations, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished. God is just. And at this moment, you kind of move your eyes down to verse 45. It says this, When the chief priests and Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Again, totally in line with what's actually going on, reality. But they understand that Jesus here is talking about them. And in a sense, as we read this passage, we need to think to ourselves, at least I'm not like the Pharisees. We need to think to ourselves, how am I like the evil tenants? In what ways do I deserve God's justice? And we get to this point where we think, I am just as wretched as these tenants who take the good gifts of God, including Jesus himself, and turn it into greedy, or we try to turn it into greedy prosperity for ourselves. How have we turn these things selfishly toward ourselves? Come to this point about how wretched we are and how we actually deserve God's justice 
against us for our sin. But the master isn't just just, he is merciful. We get this snippet that Jesus talks next. He says, have you never read the scriptures? And this quote here is from Psalm 18, uh, verses 21 and 22. The stone that the builders rejected have become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. If you guys flip over to Psalm 118 and look at really uh, verse 19 all the way through 24, it's even more in-depth than that. This little verse here is meant, to, meant for the Pharisees, right? The masters of the Old Testament, those who should know who Jesus is and what the ministry of God ought to look like in their midst. This is what they should think of when Jesus says that. Verse 19, Psalm 118 says this, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Jesus here is setting them up with this Old Testament passage to say, look how wretched you are, but look at the righteousness I provide. The requirements that the, that the king requires, he provides, right? What the king requires, he provides. Jesus is saying here that I am the provision. That for everyone who finds themselves to be just as wretched as I tell them to be, in a sense, right? I am also the righteousness that they need. The master is merciful to bring righteousness to us. And we read here that the master brings the king. God brings that righteousness that we need to us by crushing his son, right? The master is merciful. He's merciful to crush his faithful son so that we would be able to do the will of the father, to repent and believe. This means something for us, right? This means something crucial for us. That it's not the quality of our faith that saves, it's the quality of Christ that saves. It's not our actual ability to produce the fruit that the Lord requires, it's that God has done that on our behalf. It is that the Lord has done, he has fulfilled his will through Jesus, and he offers that to us. And just as in the beginning, when the disciples were amazed at the withering of the tree, the marvelous account of God's death on our behalf should turn us to respond and receive that gift through repentance and faith. The marvelous work of the tree points to the marvelous work of God. Here, Jesus in the beginning withers the tree as a sense of judgment. But here, God crushes his son in marvelous judgment so that we might be made righteous. Right? The Lord provides what he requires. So the quality of Christ that saves us. At T4G uh, last week, uh, Kevin DeYoung gave it a fantastic example about how this is true. He grew up in the way north where lakes freeze over. And he said well, the national pastime for all the kids was ice hockey. And he said the, the picture of a whole bunch of kids standing around a frozen lake trying to see if it's safe or not is the picture of the quality of faith, right? Because you got the heaviest kid who goes out there and he's like, oh man, I don't know about this. But then you got the littlest kid, he's like, this is fine. This is fine. I could be out here all day, right? Is it the quality of faith between those two kids that keeps them supported on the ice? It's not. It's the quality of the ice. Right? So we come to the Lord saying, yes, I am wretched, 
But we look to the Lord to say, you have met the requirements. We look to Jesus saying, you died so that I might live. It's the quality of our Savior, not of our faith, that saves. And so in verse 43, Jesus ties that. After saying that about himself, he says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. Again, those who have been telling everybody in the temple that they are the kingdom of God, and they need to be like him. Jesus is saying, it's actually being taken away from you. You have not produced the fruit necessary. And it will be given to the people producing fruits. And this would have absolutely shaken the scribes and elders. Because earlier in verse 32, he said, Who are the righteous? It's those who repent, even if they're as bad as a tax collector and a prostitute. The kingdom of God is given to those who believe. It's given to those who produce the fruit of faith and repentance. But I want to key in here on one more word. Look at verse 43 again. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. They have not done the will of the Father. They have not produced the fruit of faith and repentance. They have not trusted Jesus. And it will be given to the people producing its fruits. So there's another warning and encouragement here that God gives his kingdom to those producing fruit, those who continually do the will of the Father. In one sense, we have to say it is the quality of the Savior that saves, and we are receptive of that salvation through our faith, but then the ongoing implication of our faith, the ongoing inheritance of the kingdom of God has to produce fruit in us. It has to have an ongoing effect. The quality of your faith in Jesus shows up in fruitfulness. In John 15, Jesus says that he is the vine and we are the branches. That apart from him, we cannot produce fruit, but it's only those who abide, only those who remain with Jesus that are able to produce fruit. So there is a partnership here, right? As part of God's kingdom, we work with God to produce the fruit of godliness. The quality of your faith is shown in Jesus, or the quality of faith in Jesus shows in your fruitfulness. So the love for God continues to produce faithfulness in us. So two things about this. The first is this, that we need to partner with God in prayer. All the way back in 22, right, whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. That's an ongoing activity. It's not just an initial prayer, Lord, save me from my sin, please. It is the ongoing trust of the Lord that he is producing faith in us partner with God in prayer. It's easy for us to all of a sudden in a moment or over extended periods of time start to do what the Pharisees have done, which is to doubt and to fear. Right? We start doubting that God's power is real. We start doubting that God is actually good. We start doubting that his promises are actually for you and for me. And because of that, our fruit withers up. Because we doubt God, because we choose not to trust him and depend on him, the fruit that we should be receiving from him withers up. In a sense, doubt uh, cuts us off from the vine. Not in a permanent way, if we have repented and believed, but the fruitfulness, that love for God, does wither up. Or the other side of the coin would be fear, right? We would fear the reputation, the cost of, of our reputation in order to be faithful to God in a certain way. Or that we would be uh, fearful to give up control. I like my weekends. I like my job. I like what I want to do. And so therefore, I'm not going to give it up to God. Or even just uh, fear of legalism, right? What if I do trust God? What if I stop giving up what I think God requires of me to believe, to repent, and to follow him? 
We need to partner with God in prayer because he is the power of our salvation through Jesus. And prayer fights against these two things. It fights against the doubts that Satan will try to seed into our hearts and minds. And it will fight against the fear that all this is not worth it. That things in the world are worth more than the things in God's kingdom. But not just to partner with God in prayer, but then also to partner with God in pointing others to Christ through that fruitfulness. In a very real sense, right? Each one of us bears evident fruit. It's not hidden. Each one of us needs to be able to say, I am producing the fruit that God requires of me. My ongoing faithfulness, my lifestyle of repentance. When I find out that I am, in fact, pursuing a false king, I turn from that false king and follow Christ. So we need to think about this. We need to think about this in our relationships, right? Not only am I just a faithful Christian in my relationships, but am I a faithful Christian in my relationships where my fruit is a direct pointer back to the one who provided that fruit for me in Christ, right? Is my faithfulness, is my repentance showing up in a way that draws others closer to God? What about our families, right? It's so easy for our families to be stuck in traditions, stuck in the schedule, right? Stuck in the rote ins and outs of every single day and every single week, right? We want to do well in our families. We want to show up to church with our families. We want to go to Wednesday nights with our families. We want to go to all these things with our families, and that's all good. But if all those things are just the appearance of fruit, if we're saying to our families, we're not doing this so that we can believe God more, trust him more, depend on him more, commit to his ways more, instead we're doing this to manufacture that fruit on our own power, then that's no good. There's an old adage here that whatever you win people with is what you win them to. If we're winning them with our power, right, if we're winning them to what we think is best, and we're not winning them with the grace and the mercy and the justice of God, then that is a problem. And that extends not only to our physical families, but to our spiritual family, right, here at church. Ministries are great, but if ministries are just performed under our own power for our own gain, then that's not good. Right? That's not ministerial, spiritual fruit. In every way, in our personal relationships, in our families, in our church, our fruit, the, the faithfulness that the Lord has provided for us in love to him, points others towards Christ. We see here for the Pharisees that they do not take this to heart. Again, in verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was talking about them, totally true, but instead of following the will of the Father, verse 46, and although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Sadly, the Pharisees do not, they do not turn and believe in Jesus. And even though Jesus here reveals their heart to them, and they know it, reveal who he is as king and Messiah, and they know it, they choose not to do that. And so they skulk away unrepentant, uh, unrepentant in the Lord, hardened in their unbelief. Just a thought for us today. Are we more like the Pharisees here, skulking away from the truth of the kingdom, that Jesus has in fact come, he has revealed the requirements that he holds for those to be part of his kingdom, but not just that, but he has met those requirements in his death and resurrection and offers that to us. Or are we too doubtful of God's power, goodness, promises? Are we too fearful of what that cost might be? Or are we looking to God, his promises, trusting, depending on him, choosing to believe 
that he is the king that we need and showing that in the fruitfulness of repentance and faith. If you have any questions about that, you can talk to the elders or myself, but this passage warns us not to go away without thinking about what the king requires and how he provides it in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you again for uh, your clear word for us, Lord, that day in, day out, you reveal yourself to us in a way that is unmistakable, Lord, through your word, through the efforts of the church, through personal interaction with other believers. Father, you continue to show us that you are the Messiah and that, Father, you require faith and repentance. But, Lord, that is based on your effort on the cross, not our own. Lord, help us to be warned by this passage, but Lord, also to come to a deeper love, a deeper trust in who you are, Lord, because you have provided what we need in your Son. We pray, Father, that we would rejoice and celebrate 